You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Welcome back, everyone. I am Mike Brazier, and I'll be your host on this episode. Joining me as co-host in studio is Katie Burke. Katie, welcome. Thanks. Hey, Mike. It's good to be back in studio with you. Uh, Joining us remotely today, we have two extremely special guests, and they're going to help us discuss a topic that's of great importance to waterfowl hunters, wetlands conservation, waterfowl art, and most importantly, migratory bird habitat conservation more broadly. That topic is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Duck Stamp Program. Other folks will will have heard it referenced as the Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp. There's a piece of legislation that goes along with that. We'll probably get into a little bit of that. Our two guests are Jerome Ford, Assistant Director for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Migratory Bird Program. Jerome, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Glad to be here. And Suzanne Fellows, manager of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Duck Stamp Program. Suzanne, great to have you with us as well. Thank you. You're talking about one of my favorite things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I hope it's a favorite thing of a lot of people that are listening to this episode because it is, by many accounts, the most successful and efficient wetlands conservation program on the planet. And we're going to talk about why that is, but it's super a super cool thing. Uh, we are recording this episode on July the 6th. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had, what's it called, Katie, the official name, the first day of duck stamp? Picadera? The first day of sale. First day of sale, of sale yeah. for the duck stamp. And we had that hosted at the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid uh, there at our waterfowling heritage center. Uh, it was the site of a little special occasion there. We may get into a little bit of that discussion. I think what we want to do to start with, though, Jerome and Suzanne, is have each of you provide a bit of your background. Jerome, you have a long history with uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and so we'll start with you. Give us uh, a bit of that history, and then I want you to share with our audience what you do, what your program, the Migratory Bird Program, does and all that it encompasses. So take it away, Jerome. Right. Uh, thanks, Mike. You said I've been around a long time. That's a sense of way of saying that I'm old. And that's quite all right. Thank you for being <laughs> hey, we're, respectful. We're, and not, yeah, we're friends. We've known one another for what, 18 years now? A long, long time, sir. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I'm a graduate of Gamlin State University way back in, in the day and started work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about 33 years ago. And I'm proud to say um, I began my career in the field as a young refuge manager trainee. I did that for about 16 years. Uh, started out at Hollow um, Bend National Wildlife Refuge in Logan Cave, did uh, Ozark Cave fish and bats, and of course, waterfowl at Hollow Bend. And I went on to uh, Bayou Codre Refuge in Louisiana, where I did uh, uh, black bear and different neotropical songbirds there. And then to the famed Tinsaw River National Wildlife Refuge in northern Louisiana. And after that, after about six years there, I got a call from the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, Dale Hall, who formerly used to work for Ducks Unlimited. Uh, Gave him a call and asked me to come to D.C. to serve as his special assistant. And I did that for a couple of years. Uh, Then I served as the deputy assistant director for the Migratory Bird Program uh, for about two to three years and somehow got uh, picked and selected for the assistant director for Migratory Birds. I've been doing that for the past 12 years sitting in this chair. 
Now, I think you asked, you know, what do our what do I do on, on a daily basis and what does the migratory bird program do? I tell people to make it simple, keep it simple, is that we protect 1,100 species of birds via the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And we also administer the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act for those two species as well. So when you walk outside and you hear birds singing, uh, just think about the Migratory Bird Program of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, my voice or my face will be in the back of your mind because that's what we do is protect those critters and their habitat uh, for the American public. But Jerome, y'all do a wonderful job of that. Y'all are a critical partner for Ducks Unlimited, for so many of our state partners, all of our state partners. Uh, the the work that we all do is hand in hand. It's a joy to work with y'all on, on all these things. It's, it's complicated, uh, but the reward on the back end of it, knowing that we're doing things together to preserve migratory bird populations and their habitats is is super cool and it's it's something that's of value to the American public and one of the things that we hope to do is increase the the value that the American public places on migratory birds and those habitats and the conservation needed for it um, some of the other kind of highlights I want to want to try to help our audience a large number of which are going to be waterfowl hunters kind of see, there, how how the work that you do and the different programs that, that you're working on kind of connects with them. And so you mentioned the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is sort of the, the key piece of legislation that drives the work that, that y'all do. But the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, the Neotropical uh, Act is also kind of housed in some way in, in your program. Uh, the Duck Stamp Program obviously is within there as well. Uh, Joint ventures, migratory bird habitat joint ventures are also under the migratory bird program. Monitoring and evaluation programs associated with migratory birds and, and what our audience is going to be keenly interested in is the, the breeding population survey, the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. That's where we get our annual estimates of, of waterfowl numbers and a lot of other surveys. Harvest regulations uh, and prob uh, permitting, a whole host of, of other things, but it's it's not, I mean, it's, it's a big group of, of, of programs and, or, or sort of sub-programs, whatever you, however you refer to those and incredibly important for a lot of things that are, uh, that are valuable and have implications for our audience. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for mentioning that. I didn't want to bore people, but it is, as you mentioned, it is complicated, right? It's, we do the population side, we do the habitat side and and there's nothing that we do in the Migratory Bird Program alone, as you will often hear me say, it's about partnerships. And we have tons and tons of partners out there that we rely on to help help us with uh, accumulating data and analyzing that data. So we can do things like setting the hunt regulations for those folks who are interested in waterfowl hunting and, and other migratory birds. So, But thank you for mentioning that. And uh, yet it is complicated for sure. Let's swing it over to Suzanne and you tell us how you got to where you are today and what all that entails. Yeah, so I was uh, very fortunate in that I grew up with a biologist father and a biologist mother and got to play as a biologist as a kid. Um, I wouldn't say that they were my exact mentors, but I did have mentors through National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, and um, some private museums as I was growing up. Um, I've been in the service since 1993, so I've almost got Jerome um, with my 30 years was last May. Um, I have a, a management degree, wildlife management degree from University of North Dakota and a master's degree from Utah State University. Um, I've worked, my first jobs were temporary in Fish and Wildlife Service, um, working on refuges. I worked up at Browns Park National Wildlife Refuge up in the northwest corner of Colorado. And then I moved to Kansas and worked out of Quivira National Wildlife Refuge. Um, both of these areas were um, where I came in contact with Ducks Unlimited and their work because they do so many partners out with the Fish and Wildlife Service in the field as well. In 2000, I joined the Migratory Bird Program. I left refuges and crossed over to the dark side, went to the regional office uh, in Colorado, and I've been here ever since. Um, I started with the Junior Duck Stamp Program in 1995 as a uh, coordinator, and um, when the job came open here, 
to work with um, Jerome and his crew of the duck stamp office, I jumped at the chance. And it's been, I've been here since 2013. It's the only thing, and I keep telling Jerome this, it's the only thing that would bring me to the Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. Uh, Suzanne, thanks for that, that introduction. I would love for us to take at least another half hour and explore in more detail your background, but we can't do that. We got to get onto the topic here. But it was very interesting kind of hearing you introduce each of you introduce your careers because you mentioned some places that that are going to be familiar with some of our listeners, whether it be Tinsall, whether it be Quivera. And I think that helps bring a little bit of a personal connection to the voices and the stories that they're going to be hearing and knowing that they have, that, that the two of you have intersected with some of the places that they've, that our listeners value and have uh, spent a lot of time on. So thank you for that. And Suzanne, I want to stay with you on this next question. We'll get right into it. The duck stamp program, that's going to be the topic of our conversation. For those who may not be aware, and I guarantee you the vast majority of our audience is going to be aware of the duck stamp, but for the duck stamp program, uh, what is that? Or, well, let me ask you, what is the federal duck stamp and what is the, what is the program and what all is captured under that, that program? Because it's more than just the stamp, right? There's a lot that goes into that. Give us the 50,000 foot view. <laughs> 50,000 foot view. Okay. So essentially we make the product that makes the money for conservation um, with the duck stamp. So we have a contest, an annual contest each year. Anytime the artwork or anytime the regulations change or we're asked to do something, we write those regulations for the duck stamp. Uh, we design with our artists and our stamp um, printer, we design the stamp, and then we get it out for distribution and sales. And then we collect the money and hand it over to refuges who turns around and spends it. Um, we also run the Junior Duck Stamp Program, which is sort of our environmental education outreach portion of the program. Um, but it's it sounds like it's easy and but it's a little bit more <laughs> involved than that. But that's about the 50,000 foot. Okay, well, maybe let's go down a little bit more. Tell us about the history of the duck stamp. I believe it was 1934. It's mm -hmm. in place because of a piece of legislation. So kind of give us uh, the thumbnail sketch of that for people who may not understand the history because we have a lot of young listeners that, that may not really be familiar with that phenomenal history behind this stamp, how it came about. Okay, we even have to go farther back from 1934. Um, 1929, the Migratory Bird Conservation Commission was formed, and this commission was in charge of, among other things, um, trying to purchase property for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Refuge Program. However, when they were, were formed, they did not have any monetary source. Um, Ding Darling, who at the time was working with Fish and Wildlife Service's predecessor, uh, suggested with the help of others, especially hunters and other concerned waterfowl uh, biologists and users, that we have a duck stamp, um, something that would be a revenue-forming way to tax people who essentially tax people um, who use the product, the ducks, and use that funding to fund the National Wildlife Refuges that the NBCC would purchase. So 1934, we sort of, the, the stories sort of differ, but evidently uh, Mr. Darling just sort of sketched out what a duck stamp would look like. You know, we've, we who've bought um, cigarettes or uh, alcohol, there's a, a tax on that. And this is the same type. It's a user tax. And he had to explain to his buddies, you know, what, what it looked like. And so he simply drew out sort of a sketch of what a duck stamp would look like. The program um, took hold. We changed from a $1 stamp. We now have a $25 stamp um, because as, you know, this is the 90th year and prices of habitat have gone up quite a bit. We sell about 1.5 million stamps a year right now. Uh, hunters are our main purchasers. Uh, anybody who sell or who purchases Anybody who wants to, to hunt waterfowl has to purchase a migratory bird duck stamp. Um, it's part of their licensing program. But we do hope that anybody who's interested in conservation 
will purchase one because the funding goes directly into Habitat. It is It does not pay for my salary. It does not pay for Jerome's salary. It is strictly for Habitat. Now, Suzanne, I want to back up a little bit on the, the requirement that waterfowl hunters purchase the, the, the stamp. That's required of hunters 16 years and that older, is correct. right? Yes. Okay, so if you're 16 years or older, you have to purchase it. Uh, obviously, everyone here would encourage people to buy more than one and would encourage mm-hmm. you to buy it, as Suzanne, <laughs> as you said, regardless of whether you're a waterfowl hunter. So I've heard somewhere that the original sketch that Ding Darling provided was not intended to be what actually went to print. He was kind of upset whenever he realized that folks ran with that and put that into print because he wasn't finished with it. Is that true? Sort of. Like, well, correct, but he did like go and refine it a little okay. bit. Yes. Right. But yes, he did not think what he drew was going to be the stamp. He okay. was just like something like this. Okay. That's right. It was a concept. It was a concept at first. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think it's it is obviously the most classic <laughs> and one of the most iconic um, yeah. renderings and duck stamps. Obviously, it was the first one. Well, and then another fun fact. This is a duck stamp related, but on the refuge sign, the can the goose is also his. Correct. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about purchasing the stamp for just a moment. The where people get that stamp has changed over time. I remember having to go to the post office, mm-hmm. Katie, you probably do too, having yep. to go to the post office to buy that stamp. And if you procrastinated too much, you might find yourself in a situation <laughs> where you go to a post office. You grew up in a small town like both Katie and I did where they didn't have any more. And you had to drive like, 30 minutes to the right. nearest Walmart. That's right. <laughs> so it behooved you to not wait back in the day when it was only available physically, has a physical stamp at your post office, that has changed and now you can access, uh, you can purchase the duck stamp from a number of locations. So, Suzanne, talk about that. Where can people buy their duck stamps? So, right now, about uh, two-thirds of them are sold through the e-stamp program, which is a program that allows anybody 24-7 access uh, to get on and purchase a duck stamp or several from one of the different state agencies that sells them. These state agencies have gone through a vetting process and have essentially they allow their people to purchase a permit that allows them to hunt for 45 days without having the actual stamp in hand. The current law says that you must have a physical stamp. However, the the electronic stamp does allow us to allow people for 45 days or up until they receive their their mailed stamp to to hunt. So that's one way to purchase the stamp. There are also several consignees. Um, There's still some mom and pop stores that sell the stamp. There's still some Walmarts that sell them. About uh, 20% of our stamps are sold through U.S. Postal Service, both the U.S. Postal Store as well as the the few stations that still uh, have the actual stamps on them. Some national wildlife refuges also have them for available for sale. Um, and then there's our distributor. Uh, a certain big distributor is Amplex, and they also have a um, online as well as a phone-in. ABA, um, American Birding Association, also has them online. So there's there's several ways you you just Google buy federal duck stamp you will you will find several websites that will help you find us. It's far easier to find and purchase duck stamps now than it ever has been, and that's a great thing. There's there's they're trying to remove as many of those hurdles. Now there is something the the astute listener and astute sort of ducks unlimited volunteer in listening to your response there, Susan, will may have another question running through their mind, and I'll. I'll, I'll mention this. I won't ask either of you to comment on this, but there is a piece of legislation that's floating around out there that would that would eliminate that 45-day validation period. I, it has not made its way all the way through through Congress, but that is something that our policy folks are, are working on, and uh, hopefully that is something that um, that will make it across the finish line here in the coming months. And I suspect some of our policy folks will have some updates on that, maybe even through the ep- through a future episode here. But for people that may have been aware of that and may have heard of that, I wanted to kind of add that little caveat there, uh, eliminate some confusion that may have, may have occurred. So still in the works on that piece of legislation. Absolutely. And let's see, okay, uh, anybody can purchase a duck stamp and 
through the history of the Acadias, kind of starts to get into some of the area that you're really interested in, the history of waterfowl art. I actually uh, was into stamp collecting a bit whenever I was younger. And so duck stamps were a prominent part of that collection. So the the duck stamp itself holds a very special place in the stamp collecting community. And so as a result, there has been a long history even outside of an interesting conservation of people purchasing this stamp. So, Suzanne, what has been our ability through time to estimate or try to get a handle on the number of people that don't hunt that are buying this stamp? I I imagine that's a pretty difficult thing to do, but what can you share in terms of our ability, either historically or now, on the way to identify you know, partition out why people or or what type of people, categories of people are buying the stamp? Yeah, that's a that's a difficult one because we don't ask people how they, you know, why they're buying it for. Part of the problem is that so many people buy them for multiple purposes. Um, you know, they might be hunters and bird watchers and stamp collectors and art collectors and want the prints. Um, you know, they buy one for their hunting and one for, for their collection. Um, we know, based on our harvest reports, how many hunters we have each year. We know how many um, people purchase licenses each year. Um, if you take that number, then approximately two-thirds of what is being sold now is sold to hunters. Um, now, these are people who who have purchased or should have purchased their deck stamp um, when they purchase their license. Some, a lot of people do buy more than one. A lot of hunters do buy more than one. Um, but there's also the the big collectors who will buy more than one. Um, they'll come in and, and spend, you know, $10,000, which is, is always <laughs> interesting. Um, so I'd say it's, it's about two-thirds of the people are using them directly for hunting. Suzanne, one thing just occurred to me as I uh, as I was listening to you, we talked about how the purchasing of a duck stamp is required of all hunter, waterfowl hunters age 16 and older, but there are other benefits that come with the purchase of a duck stamp, right? Talk about those like entrance to national wildlife refuges uh, for any that may have entrance fees. Talk about that, some of the other benefits. Yeah, um, that is the other benefit for having a duck stamp is that it allows you... Um, access onto any of the Fish and Wildlife Services that have a fee. Uh, this past weekend, I was out at um, Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge want to go around their wildlife loop. And having a duck stamp that was the first one of the year helped. <laughs> um, you know, it's it, it was great just saying, yes, I have a duck stamp. Um, then we used it out at Bombay Hook out on in Delaware. And it just allows us to not have to pay the $3 fee, which gives us more money to um, go and play in their gift shops and support the refuge that way. So I can support both duck stamps and, and the refuge itself. I want to transition or I guess build off of that and talk about how the money collected through the duck stamp program as a result of duck stamp purchases is used and how every... Every person in America benefits from that and how our migratory birds benefit from that. So, Jerome, uh, I think maybe I'll throw this question to you. You can throw it to Suzanne if you want to, but I did want to ask, like, how is the money, how is the money used? Uh, and let's just start there. What do people need to know about how the money that comes from their purchase of the duck stamp is used and what are the type of, of like, programs it's used to fund? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, I'll start off and uh, always let Suzanne back clean up so she can hit a grand slam for us here. <laughs> uh, but for, for every dollar, you know, that that's spent buying a federal duck stamp, uh, we like to let people know that 98 cents of that dollar goes directly to purchase vital habitat or acquire conservation easements for protection, as uh, Suzanne mentioned, in the National Wildlife Refuge System. Uh, however, uh, the process of how duck stamp dollars are used on the ground is actually complicated, as you and I both discussed a little bit earlier. I wish it was simple, uh, but that's why we have Suzanne to kind of help keep us on track and understand those details. Uh, but a lot of the, the sales from the duck stamp are combined with import duties, uh, imported arms and ammunition, uh, and this uh, funding all gets pooled together uh, into the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund. Uh, now, the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund is actually administered by 
the Migratory Bird Conservation Commission, which is a seven-member uh, commission led by the Secretary of the Interior, which is Deb Holland right now. Uh, and you know, it's that same Migratory Bird Conservation Commission that approves projects proposed for conservation for migratory birds on national wide refuges. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of the NACA habitat, those projects come before this commission uh, to spread the wealth and, and to make sure we have plenty of habitat out there for, for the migratory birds. And, it, and Suzanne, anything to add? Just that the the point two cents, or two cents that isn't, it goes for things like paying the U.S. Postal Service to assist us in the contract to print the stamps as well as the contract to uh, sell the stamps, make them available at the U.S. Postal Service. So it's, you know, it's a very, very nice way to get your money's worth of, of property. I've seen some, yeah. I've seen some articles recently. Um, and of course, we talk about this often with Index Unlimited. I think I heard Adam um, speaking about it. Maybe it was in response to yeah. the, the, the first day of sale event and, and, kind of heralding the duck stamp program as the most efficient conservation inv investment that that anyone can make. Uh, I think we would all like to say Ducks Unlimited is the second <laughs> best investment that folks can make. Um, but I have also heard Delta Waterfowl say the duck stamp program, the most effective and efficient conservation program out there. So there's not any argument among the conservation community about the great efficiency, the phenomenal efficiency that comes from this program. And that's why investing in, which is what you are legitimately doing when you purchase more than one duck stamp, you are investing in habitat conservation and its ability to support not just waterfowl, but all migratory birds. And uh, Jerome, you and I kind of talked offline uh, about about all the different type of activities that that are funded, the different programs, whether it be easements, acquisitions, the other uh, programs that those are run through. That's a conversation that I think has a bit more detail to it, and we'll save that for for another guest, and we can really get into the nitty gritty about where and when and how those types of activities occur. But I want to, because I know you love talking about this. Uh, you and I have worked together for, for close to two decades, which is kind of scary for me to say that now. You are passionate about migratory bird conservation. And so I want you to talk about how you view the duck stamp, the duck stamp program and and the habitat work that it does, not just for waterfowl, but all migratory birds. And I mean, how, how much pride do you have that this program is under uh, your leadership? Yeah, thanks. I mean, you, you either set me up or, or failure of success because I do <laughs> love talking of, about that, uh, no doubt. And we've had to have conversations and help uh, some of our partners understand, yes, we're out here saving wetlands and the most iconic species oftentimes are waterfowl, and right? And those are hunted and, and people enjoy getting out there doing that. But I've had to say to people, there are other species, non-game species, which are using that very same habitat. So you're kind of, um, well, I'm going to get in trouble for this. You're helping more than one bird at a time. That, hey, that's how about great. That? You, know, I, you shouldn't get in trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say something else, but I thought better of it, <laughs> right? Uh, another saying, but it is. And I think that's what it's all about. And, and if I can just make a point here about the, the loss of 3 billion birds over 50 years, and you look at that, and I know that's another day's discussion, but the species, the birds that are doing the best, they're wetland species in particular, waterfowl. So just looking at that, I'm going, wow, we can do the waterfowl thing and we can do shorebirds and waterbirds and other birds at the same time to bring some of those numbers back. That just made sense to me. Uh, and again, so it's just don't get focused on what some people have called the delicious species, but let's look at some of those non-game species as well. And if we can combine those efforts, we can definitely bring birds, uh, populations back to some some point where they can sustain themselves, whether you're talking about you know, climate change, or some people talk about the drying up of the Colorado River or in the climate. It, it doesn't matter if we put our focus together and talk about birds and other critters as a whole. Look at the landscape as a whole versus just having those one or two species that are, you know, that are important to individuals. But uh, I think collectively, which you and Katie and Suzanne and I have talked about today, is partnership. Let's figure out how everybody can benefit and we can bring a whole bunch of birds back at the same time. So, yeah, I'm passionate about that. I think it'll work. And we have a lot of partners, whether we're talking about uh, NAPSI or federal partners, uh, kind of feeling the same way. So I'm excited to see what happens here in the next couple, three years as we continue to 
that process of thinking holistically. Thank you, Jerome. Uh, NABSI, you mentioned an, a uh, an acronym. One of the things that I'm on alert for here as host is like, what are the acronyms <laughs> that I know that our audience is it that NABSI is North American Bird Conservation Initiative, and we'll have a conversation about that some other time in the future. But but you provided an excellent segue to my last question, and then I'm going to hand it over to Katie for some questions more on sort of the history of the contest and and how. The, how this is such a prominent part of waterfowl art community. Uh, you mentioned partnerships. You mentioned growing the visibility of of the great work that occurs as a result of the duck stamp sale, sales and the program. Uh, one of those is like partnering with one of those partnership, I guess, efforts is the the uh, partnership with Bass Pro Shops to host the first day of sale event. How has that helped elevate the visibility of the program and also things like transitioning to digital? Have we seen Have we seen greater visibility? Have we seen kind of greater uptake? Any benefits from those types of things toward this gr- larger goal of, of growing support and investments in conservation? If, if it's okay, I, I'll I'll start out and maybe let Suzanne talk about the transition to digital piece uh, because I I can't say enough about Bass Pro and that entire team. You know, it, and it's hard to believe uh, that we've been working with Bass Pro for over 20 years, partnering with them uh, to produce the first day of sale event. You know, time really flies. You know, when you're having fun and you're working with good partners like that. Uh, so we totally appreciate all that uh, Bass Pro and. And Mr. Johnny has done to amplify the opening day for Doug Stamp uh, sale. If you think about, I know you weren't able to be there with us very long, but there a couple of weeks ago, people just flocked to the you know to the first day of sale event, and they that was not their intention, but they saw what was going on and they saw a little bit of the artwork, and we filled every chair, and we do that every single time that we work with Bash Pro because there's so many people in their store doing great things and trying to connect to nature. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all doing this together. And, and we know that having wild places and wild animals and is important to all Americans. You know, think about COVID. What is the one thing that people that increased over that three-year period? It was bird watching. People wanted to get out uh, to see birds and got their binoculars and their spotting scope. And I tie this back in uh, to waterfowl because they are some of the largest species that you see. So if you had water in a park um, where people were out, you know, making a visit just to try to get a hold of themselves, being cooped up from COVID, people started to identify ducks and see different things, different species that had never seen before. Uh, so, so we all know definitely here as we talk about this today, you know, Bass Pro is a private industry. Uh, that many people of the public may visit and get inspired to go explore the outdoors for the very first time. Now, this may be their first touch point to some people that they have the idea of getting outside. Uh, the very first time that they make that natural connection to nature. And that means a lot to all of us who work in the conservation field because we need their support to continue to do the great things we're doing for critters all across the, all across the country. So that's exciting for me uh, as a partner. Uh, but we look forward to and we look forward to continuing working with uh, Bash Pro uh, into the future. Suzanne, on the digital side, how has that uh, helped elevate the program? Because people can purchase the stamp um, electronically, I think it's made it. There's no excuse not to be able to buy one. Um, it just makes it that much easier for most people to access. Um, and like you said, you don't have to run around at trying to find a post office that's a open and b has stamps. At it at you know three a.m. when you're getting ready to go out to that blind, you can just do it at home <laughs> before you leave. Um, you know the the stamp law is such that we don't have a permanent digital stamp at this point. Um, you know we, we will work on making it accessible, making it available to everyone, um, but also extremely available or extremely. Um, easy to get to for the hunting population who has to purchase it. Uh, We don't want any excuses as to, no, you can't, I can't find one. Digital, you know, our our traditions and our our way of doing things due to technology have changed over many years. And we're just trying to go with the flow, Um, but, you know, following regulations and also keeping the tradition of the duck stamp and the artwork out there. That is uh, another great segue for the next set of questions that we're gonna ask. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, Katie will start off with the questions.
More of the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I kind of want to now switch over to the contest side of things. And Suzanne, could you kind of, for people who aren't familiar with the Duck Stamp Contest, could you um, let our audience know why it is so unique and what um, you find most exciting about it? That's it's a hard one. Um, <laughs> so in 1934, the first stamp was done as a sketch by uh, Mr. Ding, Ding Darling. Um, however, for the next several years after that, we had the, the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, predecessors asked for people specifically to enter a drawing or they specifically asked a person to um, submit something for the duck stamp. In 1949, um, Bob Hines who had done the 1946-1947 stamp, um, was hired as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service staff illustrator. And he opened up, essentially started this as a contest. Um, we went from limited invited people to anyone across the country, any um, adult from the U.S. with U.S. citizenship. I believe that we can we can say that thank you to Mr. Bob Hines for making it that open contest. Now I say it's an open contest, but it has rules. Um, it is very regulated, and that is one of the things that makes it unique. It's the only federally regulated um, contest in the United States. Art contest in the United States. Um, the regulations are published um, in the Code of Federal regulations. And if we want to change any of the rules, we have to go through the whole rule writing process. But the artwork is essentially, it lays out, the regulation lays out um, which species we can choose and how many judges we have, what our judges' um, qualifications have to be. Um, And then we have our judges have to choose the stamp for, that'll make the best for both the duck hunters and art collectors it is biologically correct so yeah you answered one of my questions that i was gonna i was actually gonna skip over but you answered it so i want to go back because one of the things i noticed i've noticed a long time ago is those years before 1949 it is a heavy hitter of waterfowl artists it is one name after another it goes from bishop to lassell to you know and i, I always wondered why and that makes sense they were selected um because yeah it does move right through them um so I would like to know with that first contest, how how is how was that first few contests? What were those like for people? Like, I mean, now we have like the big documentary, you can kind of see everything what the contest is like. But what were those early competitions like? Um, now I wasn't around then. Uh, right. <laughs> of course. But but you've but heard. Heard, yeah. heard stories yeah. that, you know, the first contest, the first open contest had like sixty-three people who entered. Um so they it was small. Um and people were allowed to enter more than one entry. Um, okay. There were different size that the artwork could be, uh, different requirements that, you know, species-wise. Um, I don't know if the early contests asked for a specific species. Um, right now, we do limit it to five or fewer species. Um of the eligible Native American, Native North American species um, per year. And we have it very strict at the seven by uh, nine size. Um, We get about 200 entries a year. We had at one point in time, the contest was held over several days because they get 2,000 entries. 
And each time you have a contest and something happens that people either don't like or do like, the rules might get changed. You know, for for instance, um, we have a very specific requirement that the it has to be a live portrayal of a live duck. And that came through many years of dead duck and uh, a decoy rather than a live duck. So each time we have something that um, forces us to change, we, we change the regulations. To get from 2,000 um, entries down to just one, it used to be that everybody would enter. There was no cost associated with it. We now have a cost associated with it to help well, first of all, it, it it does help make sure that people understand that this is serious. Uh, this is a is a a real contest. It is worth putting your time and effort into. Um, we don't pay our artists when they win. Uh, right now, our artists become our ambassadors for a year, and our artists do uh, lots of trips with us. Um, they they were out at uh, first day of sale. They were out at Easton. Um, waterfowl festival, you know, some of these other big waterfowl festivals and art contests. Um, but the artwork doesn't get them any money. Um, there have been times when wildlife art has gone through the roof as far as popularity. At that point in time, they have, you know, made some funds off of it, but it's basically their stamp that makes funds for conservation. I mean, and it does give them some, there is like some gravitas on winning. So they may not make money on that particular work, but then their name is out there. And yeah, so they do get something from winning. Yes, there's definitely incentive. I would like to think that that is, is sort of the special thing for them is to to be part of the conservation partnership because we yeah. make you know $35 million a year off of a stamp that an artist has done. So Katie... Could I add a tidbit that Suzanne yes. taught me that I didn't know? Um, the book is normally here on my desk, but the very first contest they were held here in the main interior building uh, oh, down wow. in down in the auditorium, and most folks uh, don't realize that. But Suzanne educated me that on a, uh, educated me on that a few years ago, um, and I don't know what year it was. We start taking it on the road because we want to get more people involved. Uh, but that's just a, a little historical fact that. Um, you know, most people don't know. It was in this I very building. I didn't know that. Yeah, right right downstairs. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. So what I'd like to go back a little bit, Suzanne, if you can kind of explain how some of those criteria are chosen, like um, the species each year, how they're chosen, uh, the qualifications for the judges, just kind of walk us through how those things are selected. So the species each year, um, we've tried to get our artists about three years worth of warning because they like to develop their own pictures. So we try to set a list based on uh, sort of hunter preference, you know, obviously canvasbacks and mallards and Canada geese and wood ducks, they have a huge appeal. Uh, but we don't want it to just be the canvas back or the the mallard stamp. So we we get in some less known species as well. We try to choose a species list that incorporates um, ducks, geese, and swans. Um, you know, so we hit all the three three major groups of of, duck, uh, of waterfowl. We try to make sure that they're found. Something one of those species at least is found in every part of the country. Um, you know, it's not fair to just do surf scoters and and sea ducks. Um, the people in the the center of the U.S. would have a little bit of a problem with that. They might never see those. However, we also want people to understand that there are some other ducks that are specialized to certain areas. You know, the the black-bellied whistling duck, for example, a few years ago, you know, something from the southeast of the U.S. Um, it's kind of a, well, let's see, what haven't we seen for a while and what would people like to see choice? Um, since we see a lot of the same species recycled over and over again, we, we want to make sure that there's a good group of five that they can choose from. As far as the judges' qualifications, um, we have to, this is written in the regulations as well, we have to have somebody who knows waterfowl anatomy. We need to have somebody who understands that this is going to be a stamp. 
because often we get this wonderful artwork just wouldn't make a good stamp. And when you're talking about taking a painting that's seven by nine down to one and a half by two inches, that's you have to understand that this is for a stamp, what's going to work on a stamp. Right. And just to add that, because that comes into the size of the actual waterfowl, right? So um, is there like, is there a certain percentage that waterfowl needs to take up in that image for it to look as like, do you think about that? Yeah. Well, so the, the regulation states that the waterfowl, the eligible species has to be the primary um, focal point of that drawing. So it does lead to having, you know, a large waterfowl and and maybe some habitat on the site. But yeah, that that has to be the main viewpoint. We have had rules in the past that have had a specific theme that has required other things to be part of it, which does become a problem when you talk about scale. Is there any species of waterfowl that hasn't yet appeared on the stamp? Sorry to take you back a little bit. I, I'm supposed to know the answer to this, and I'm tr- also trying to think of I what think was I the know one. The what was the one that the last one that kind of checked the box of? I mean, and let's put Mexican duck out of the equation here because there's some kind of dispute there, or there's still discussions so, on when that's going to be recognized. Tell me if I'm right, because I uh, just interviewed. Well, I interviewed Joe after the first day of sale, and he won for the speckled eider. Was that the last? Spectacled. Spectacled, sorry. Excuse me, biologist. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a fantastic painting that he did. However, his black scoter was the last okay. one. Yeah, he said he had, it was like, y'all did a contest where you just did the scoter. That was what he yes, was saying. Yeah. He just did the scoter. So you could check the box. And it came down to like the ridges on the bill of his black scoter, wow. which is why we have a, an, a, uh, somebody who knows waterfowl anatomy as the judge, um, as being so important. There is one other species. Um, now that we have separated cackling geese from Canada geese, oh. yeah. there's a possibility the cackling goose will show up as um, yeah. on the list as a species that hasn't been chosen. Would yeah. you do another one where you just did that species so it made a stamp or would y'all do the five? I don't know if you can answer that question. But. Um, I probably will. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It could, <laughs> it could happen. Um, the regulation says five or fewer species eligible each year. So it could okay. be. Um, I think that would not make as interesting a contest as having, you know, a mix of species. But <laughs> right. that, that may be. <laughs> that's going to be a Jerome suggestion. <laughs> I, 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 no, I think that's, I think that we'll give it a chance, right? If it seems to uh, struggle a little bit, we can always uh, adjust the rules to, to give it an even greater chance. Yeah, we're open okay. to that. Yeah, so to finish the judges, so you said um, the to know the stamp, and they need to have a biology background. Was there anything else that qualifies them? Yes, um, they they need to have a fine art background as well. They have to have uh, credentials as an artist. And then they have to have shown that they are um, a conservation worker, partner, um, somebody who from like Ducks Unlimited and Delta and some of these other groups are perfect conservation partners. And then the, the last one is, is that they understand duck stamp is used for the sporting hunting waterfowling it's not just a pretty postage stamp it's um what the background is behind the stamp so among our panel we have to have one person who is is the expert in each of those and quite often our panel has there's a lot of overlap so we have people that know both waterfowl id as well as uh, our artists but those are the basic five. And is there are there deliberations that occur, or I guess consultation that occurs among the, the the judges at any point in time in the contest? There is the opportunity for questions. Um, we keep the judges are supposed to make all their decisions on their own. Um, however, we do have a waterfowl biologist who is there to assist if there are questions about does that look right? Is that habitat and plumage right for this time of the year? Um, they, they're they not supposed to discuss it, what their answers are, but they are supposed to all hear the same thing. So, so Suzanne, if, if I could jump in when the scoring happens, and I'm learning too, Suzanne is the expert, y'all. I'm, I, I learn every contest, right? When we bring back some of the 
art, right? You know, when the scoring is there, how does that work, Suzanne? Do the do the artists talk to one another there, or or how does that piece work? You know what I mean? The, so what Jerome you're referring to is between the first and second rounds. Yes. So the first round is in and out. Um, basically, if you have to have three ins in order to progress onto the next. However, there are you know after you've gone through 200 pieces, there are some that. An artist might just like, or a, excuse me, a judge might just like enough to want it to have it go into the the second round, and and that's on their own. Um, they can bring back up to five pieces per judge, and so if Harry Judge likes this piece and it doesn't get enough to go through to to get the ends, um, he could bring it back okay. in round two. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when you look at some like a piece of work like that, like you might, they might see something in, in hopes that they that the other judges see it at a second time, right? And you do get to look at it to a scaled size, right? Y'all have something to shrink it down. Yes, we got reduction glasses, which are essentially are reverse <laughs> magnifiers. Right. Yeah, okay. You can use those. Um, the other thing that we found is that if you look at it with your your iPhone. About that size is what is a good example as well. Oh, look at technology coming in. <laughs> Suzanne, so I'm actually, last few questions. I want to change um, the topic towards the Junior Duck Stamp Program. So could you kind of give us a background of the Junior Duck Stamp Program and what the goal of that program is and how it has also evolved? Uh, so the Junior Duck Stamp Program was started back in the late 1980s. It is an opportunity for students in kindergarten through 12th grade to uh, learn about wetlands and waterfowl and then draw a duck stamp. It has two main goals. First of all, to get kids out there and learning about wetlands and, and waterfowl and just learning the beauty of the birds as well as the wetlands. Um the second goal is to make sure that we have a generation, uh, a citizen coming up that understand the importance of the duck stamp. And after, you know, we get about 25,000 students, give or take a year. Um, it's always a surprise to me how many students say, oh yeah, I went through the program as a kid. I got a green ribbon or something. Um, because we do have a contest at the end that allows each state to uh, honor students who have sent in really good work or really unique drawings of their different ducks. Oh, that's great. So um, do you think, or do you believe that Junior Duck Stamp has helped inspire future waterfowl artists and how so? I, I believe so. I believe we have about 20 current artists who place really highly in the contest at the federal adult level mm -hmm. who have come through the program. Um, one of them, Rebecca Nastev, won her stamp in 2006, 2007. She's gotten up to second place. Um, she is a extremely wonderful supporter of the program, not just entering art every year, but also assisting with questions. And she's a, a good spokesman for the, for the program. Um, Christine Clayton is another student. Um, in a couple of years, we'll see um, probably uh, Madison Graham. Um, we've had we've had several students that they've done more than just enter and win the duck stamp, the junior duck stamp. Um, they've become partners. There are voice out there as well. Will um, Madison be the first one to be competing against her father or parents? Um, actually, Christine Clayton and Matt Clayton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I have a question here. Have, have we ever had uh, a woman win the contest? And who was that? Three winners. Three, okay. The last was 2016? Yes, uh, with Jennifer Miller from New York. Um, we had... Uh, Sherry uh, Russell um, Malin from California. Um, and then we've had, the first one was Nancy Howe. And so we've we've only had three women. Um, I would love to see more women enter. Each, after each entry that the women have done, um, we saw an uptick in number of women who've entered the following year. So I'd love to have more, more women enter. And the Junior Duck Stamp 
seems to show that trend continuing because there's a lot of females in the junior duck stamp program. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why I was asking. I thought I remembered you know, observing that trend at the junior duck stamp uh, contest, and so I, but I could not remember uh, the the regular contest. So, um, can you tell us like how or people and organizations can promote? Um, the Junior Duck Stamp Program. Is there like ways that they can help with that, with the competitions and those programs that you provide? First off, if they're interested in supporting the program, uh, the only funding we get for it is through the purchase of the stamp. We have a coordinator in each of the 50 states, D.C. and our territories. Our coordinators are always looking for helpers, um, either as a judge or a volunteer to help get the word out, um, help with the contest. So there are a lot of different ways. If they just want to get online and and um, Google, I keep saying Google, <laughs> Google Junior Duck Stamp State Coordinators, um, they can find the list of people who are involved in the program, get in touch with them. Um, we would love to have their assistance, even if it's just talking to their kids, their grandkids, um, their their neighborhood kids. There's so much they can do. And how would you buy the Junior Duck Stamp Program? Is it the same as the federal? The same as the federal as far as you can get them through the U.S. Postal Service, uh, the Postal Store, our partner Amplex, and then some of the junior or some of the National Wildlife Refuges also have them. So what changes and advancement do you envision for these programs for the contests in the future? And is there anything else about these programs you would like to mention before we close? I would hope that we would make it to 100 years, which would be the 1934 or the 2034-2035 stamp. We're getting ready for our 91st stamp coming up in September. Um, I'd love to see more people support the program. Uh, we had a great shout out uh, from social media through TikTok, as well as from um, um, John Oliver's show, as well as The Million Dollar Duck. Anything like that that promotes the program in a positive light is is great. Um, it, it's it's a labor of love. These artists put a lot of heart and soul into it. Um, unfortunately, there's only one winner um, each year, and I would just like to see people enjoy it. They don't have to be there in person; they can watch it online um, or take part in in one of the other events where they get to meet the artists and and show their appreciation the artists. They also show their appreciation by purchasing a stamp. Yeah. And, and, and Katie, I, I always follow Suzanne. She's our leader, right? <laughs> and one thing we're, we're discussing, Suzanne and I have over the last year and a half or two years, is trying to get more underserved communities involved and engaged. And it's what she just talked about. We can do that, you know, virtually by a lot of the social media platforms. We can bring the contest to them. Uh, versus having them try to come to a contest. So we're trying to work out those details. What does that look like so we can get more more young folks and people, period, across the country involved uh, by making sure that we provide the contest to those people who are interested and wherever they are uh, across the globe. So, yeah, we're, we're working on that, and uh, we'll get it figured out here in the, maybe the next year or so. And Suzanne, thank you so much to both of you for being here, for joining us for this incredibly important message. Jerome, you're an incredibly busy person. It's It's... It's difficult to get any of your time, let alone an hour of your time, and you've been very generous with it. We, on behalf of everyone at Ducks Unlimited, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your partnership in everything we do. It was great having you with us, Jerome. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Suzanne, same to you. Thank you for everything that you do in the Duck Stamp Program. It was great to meet you uh, a couple of weeks ago. Sorry I didn't get to stick around and chat a bit more, but this has been wonderful. If, if folks want to learn more about the Duck Stamp Program, I'm sure they can go online and search U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Duck Stamp Program. One of the top hits will hopefully be the Fish and Wildlife Service's webpage that tells you all about it. Uh, Katie, any final words? No, just thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Jerome Ford, Assistant Director for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Migratory Bird Program, and Suzanne Fellows, a manager of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Duck Stamp Program. We greatly appreciate their time and all they're doing for migratory bird habitat conservation. As always, we thank our producer who does a wonderful job with these episodes, and we thank you, the listener, for your time and for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. And as long as we can continue to uh, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and make great habitat for birds, I think birds will be just fine. So uh, they're on the uptick. So let's keep doing that. And uh, Fish and Wildlife Service will always be there to lead the way if that's what people need. So thanks for having thank, me. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. Well, you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.